Sub Rosa. A podcast about security, human rights, conflict and law with an Australian and Southeast Asian focus. Hello. This is the second episode of my conversation with Levi West, Director of Terrorism Studies at Charles Stowe University, about terrorism in Australia. The first episode covered the period from the 1960s up until around 2013. This episode covers more recent events, like the rise of the so-called Islamic State, the changing threat within Australia, and some of the debates over counterterrorism measures. Enjoy. In like 2011, we had Bin Laden's death. Mm-hmm. We had the Arab Spring. Yes. There was a lot of talk of, well, you know, Al Qaeda's on the back foot now. They've lost their main leader. Arab Spring has undercut their message. Things like that. I think also there was quite understandably a lot of terrorism fatigue yeah. in Western countries. Yeah. There'd also been the global financial crisis. Yeah. So they rightly said, we can't keep, you know, you can't just say national security and get unlimited funding anymore. Yep. And a lot of other security concerns are rising as well, like rise of China, yeah. cyber security. It seemed like jihadism was left of an issue now. Coupled with, I think, a lot of... So the other half of that, yeah. that fatigue is, in the Arab Spring, a lot of blind optimism and desperate hope. They wanted the, the, the revolution in Egypt to be successful and for us to not have to think about the Middle East through the lens that we do, again, forever. Um, and I think that ultimately was the thing that sort of blindsided most of us sitting there desperately wanting things to play well means that you tend to not sit there and go like yeah oh hang on no I've gained this out and I can see this going really 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 badly and I think that had a lot to do with with where we ended up sort of miscalculating on what was going on so yeah while there was all this concern on other stuff um you know, there are still al-Qaeda franchises existing, and one of them, Islamic State in Iraq, mm-hmm. was becoming increasingly independent. It successfully took advantage of, in effect, the failure um, of the Arab Spring in Syria, yeah. as the Assad regime brutally suppressed protests and it became a civil war. Uh, they took advantage of the chaos of the civil war. They also took advantage of the political settlement in Iraq that had been forged to suppress violence that followed the 2003 invasion, um, gradually falling apart. And arguably um, the... Um well, I won't call it preemptive withdrawal, but the the sort of ultimate withdrawal of, of U.S. troops from Iraq, um, coupled in part due to the incapacity to negotiate a status of forces agreement, yeah. that meant that you couldn't leave troops there and have them do anything of any substance because they didn't have immunity from prosecution. But that 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 sort of final withdrawal of American presence in Iraq, which left the Iraqi the nascent I'd argue Iraqi state to manage its own domestic national security all by itself. And coupled with that withdrawal of troops was also withdrawal of political engagement. Yeah. There was, it was becoming clear that Maliki government was suppressing a lot of Sunni political mm-hmm. organisations. Mm-hmm. The Islamic State of Iraq knew how to take advantage of that. Yep. America at that point didn't really sort of influence them and say, hey, stop carrying out human rights abuses against Sunnis or attempt to influence, exert some leverage there. And then I think understanding all of that without having the context of their negotiations with the Iranians over the nuclear deal yeah. and a whole range of broader things in the Middle East going on about American, not disengagement, but a, a lessening of the sort of front-footedness that at its peak is the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Um, but that it had been slowly being stepped back over time to the point now where, you know, I think... Um, America's presence in the United in in the Middle East looks nothing like it did 
in 2000, let alone 2003. Um, and more importantly, not just its presence, but its substantive influence. The Middle East thinks very differently about the United States now. Yes. That's, that's the thing that matters. Um, and while this was going on, we had large numbers of foreign fighters going and joining groups in Syria. We had a group emerge called Jabhat al-Nusra, which initially didn't acknowledge itself to be an al-Qaeda affiliate, but it was releasing its messages through al-Qaeda's media channels and things like that. Eventually, ISI, Islamic State of Iraq, released a statement saying Jabhat al-Nusra is just part of us, we created it. Jabhat al-Nusra then released a message saying, no, a public message, it was like a video and audio statement, I can't remember which, saying, no, we were created with the assistance of ISI, but they do not control us. We are a separate entity. We pledge, we reaffirm our allegiance to Al Zawahiri, the new leader of Al Qaeda. It created a situation where we had two groups within Syria claiming to be Al Qaeda's representatives in Syria. Zawahiri stepped in and said, "No, Jabhat al-Nusra is our representative. ISI, you stay out of Syria. You stay in Iraq." ISI said, "Up yours, basically." They said, "Look, your arguments rubbish." Because, yeah. um, you know, firstly, you're accepting colonial borders if you say we should be in Iraq and they should be in Syria. Yes. Secondly, Baghdadi, our leader, never gave an oath of allegiance to Zarahiri. Others claim he did. We don't know which is true. And they'll say, thirdly, you're an organisation. We're a state. Yes. And, you know, if anything, we have supremacy here. Yes. So eventually Zarahiri said, no, you're, you're not part of al-Qaeda. Um, and ISI... Kind of, we don't really need them. Mm-hmm. Had huge success in Iraq. They seized the city of Mosul, which had over a million people in it. They seized huge amounts of territory. They demolished sections of the border. Banks um, filled with US bills well, that had been left there when the Americans were there. A lot of US tanks and things like that got hold of them. Yep. And then they declared themselves to be a caliphate. They claimed that all other jihadist groups had them allegiance, uh, owed them allegiance. In fact, every Muslim in the world, they claimed, owed them allegiance, obviously. Most Muslims weren't a fan of that idea at all. Yeah, it's good to have ambition. Yeah. <laughs> and it's at this point that it, beca- that it really sort of hit the Australian public radar yeah, again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so we, we see over that period, you know, the, the first public announcements about foreign fighter flows, and then very shortly after we see announcements here, we start to see public documentation detailing the substantive Western cohorts that are traveling to the Middle East. Um, so some of those preliminary reports by Aaron Zellin and by ICSR. I think they were before this though. I think the yeah. first of those were in 2013. Yeah, okay. Um, so you know, by this stage, everyone's fairly reasonably aware we would have amended the Foreign Incursions Act. Um, yeah, we started that late 2014, yeah. But then in September of 2014, um, Adnani, the official Islamic State spokesperson, releases his in retrospect, really quite significant pronouncement, audio announcement called Your Lord Will Ever Be Watchful or something along those lines, um, in which he encourages, explicitly encourages followers, supporters, sympathisers, whatever we want to call them, um, to undertake attacks against police, intelligence, military, security officials of France, the United States, Australia, the United Kingdom or any country supporting the coalition. So by this stage, we've engaged militarily to a varying extent. And failing to attack, if you can't attack an authority figure, attack any member of the public. And do what you can. Yeah, use a rock, use a car. Smash them in the head with a rock, I think is the line. And two days after that was released, Newman Hader launches the first substantive jihadist or terrorist attack in a very long time in Australia. Um, He stabs... A Victorian police officer and an AFP officer, both attached to the Joint Task Force, 
Joint Counterterrorism Task Force in Melbourne. Um, Joint Counterterrorism Team. Yes. Um, <coughs> and um, as it turns out, has a copy of Adnani's statement on his phone. Um, and bought a flag with him. Yeah, 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 a nice flag in his backpack. And he'd already been pinged or at least picked up and spoken to for being at a shopping centre in Melbourne and displaying an ISIS flag. And yeah, and it had his passport confiscated out of suspicion yeah, so he think, was trying to join ISIS. And I think that's, that's, that's important. So one of the things that we'd begun to do when we realised that people were trying to go to Syria as foreign fighters was pass legislation that enabled us to cancel their passports. Well, it doesn't need legislation, but, but the capacity to cancel their passports. So I know that to clarify. Yeah. No, we'd been cancelling passports since 9-11, mm. uh, a number of cases, particularly people who were trying to go to Afghanistan and Pakistan okay. and such, and that's why that was a factor in the Operation Neath case. Yeah, okay. But for the first 10 years or so after 9-11, mm. we cancelled around 50 or so passports yeah. all up. Yeah. From around 2013, yeah. we start cancelling... cancelling yeah. Uh, uh, nearly, like, nearly 200 yeah. um, in a few years. Yeah. I've got the exact figure somewhere. Um, the legislation they introduced was to make it easier to cancel passports, namely to allow ASIO to cancel the passport directly for up to one week. Rather than the minister. Rather than the minister. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, but what we see with, with Hader and his cancelled passport is one of the dilemmas, and it's instructive of the, the entire dilemma that is counterterrorism, um, which is that we have a guy on our books, we know that he wants to travel to Syria yeah, to participate in hostilities and we don't want him to do that so we cancel his passport when we cancel his passport we don't know we don't know if when or how or where that's it doesn't de-radicalize him cancelling his passport doesn't make it oh okay all of my grievance stuff has now gone away i'm just going to go off and get a job and become a regular citizen he's still got all of the motivation there and the challenge with cancelling passports is that, that unless you follow that up with either ongoing surveillance which is awfully awfully expensive or with some kind of de-radicalisation program. Which is inherently a very experimental area. Absolutely. Um, and in fact, I'd venture that probably your best bet is just a disengagement program where he commits to not committing violence, since I'm not convinced that a democratic liberal state... Can change an individual's ideology or against any, their will. Or to have any business trying to change a citizen's what they believe about the world, um, as, I, as I like to put it on some of the courses I run. If you want to believe that Mossad, the CIA, Opus Dei, and the Freemasons run the world, then that's fine. If you think that the way to fix that is violence, then the state has every right to intervene. Yeah. But the pre, the first bit of that, you should be free to believe that. Okay, so let's address this passport thing a bit, because mm -hmm. this is a policy we've had since 9-11, mm -hmm. and was very rarely criticised or even noticed. Mm -hmm. More recently, as we've confiscated yet nearly 200 passports mm -hmm. of people suspecting to go fight in Syria and Iraq, it's become quite controversial. Um, it's been critiqued by some politicians, some journalists, and a number of people from two different directions. Um, for lack of better terms, I'm just going to say the left-wing critique and the right-wing critique. <laughs> yeah. So sort of the more the civil libertarian yeah. one and the security-focused yeah. one. The civil libertarian one is that we are restricting their liberty, we're restricting their right to travel mm -hmm. without proving guilt. Yes. We're not even proving something beyond the, on the balance of probabilities in the yeah. court. Yeah. There's no court. It's just um, an administrative process. Yeah. We take their passport away. How is that just? The other argument, the other critique from the right mm -hmm. side, right wing side, yes. Yes, is that they're dangerous, they're terrorists. Why are we keeping them here? Let them leave and don't let them return. <laughs> let them go there. Whatever they're going to do, they won't be killing anyone here. Yeah. So just get rid of them, get rid of them, basically. Yeah. So those are the two critiques. Yeah. Um, I personally actually think 
this is a good policy or rather yeah. it's the least worst of all the yeah, options. I agree. But let's let's tease it out. What is yeah, so what think, are the problems? I, I think the, the one on the right, which don't get me wrong, instinctively yeah. I tend to sort of agree with in a really simplistic way, which is like let him go. The the most likely outcome of this is that he dies, and that's you know from the state's perspective, that's probably the most useful outcome. Resources-wise, labour, manpower, etc., etc., is that he doesn't come back, and that's, that's this problem, problem goes away. Except for two problems. One is that we know that increasingly local legitimacy, to quote a colleague of mine, is what matters. So then you wind up with an Australian guy, Sir Neil Prakash, winds up over there in theatre. This buys him status and significance with his community back in Australia of jihadists and wannabe jihadists and because of the internet he can reach back and communicate to people back in Australia and encourage them and can direct them and inspire them. Yeah and this isn't speculative we've had no, a guy true. convicted recently in Australia yeah. yeah with courts where it's in it he's talking to a UK child and he's talking about how he's getting instructions from Neil Prakash. And even if it's not specific direct communication, we know that uh, one of the guys in, in Canada, Martin Rouleau, who ran down a Canadian Armed Forces guy, had been following a Canadian guy in theatre on Twitter. Yeah, so whilst there's not necessarily direct communication taking place, it's the fact that there's somebody I identify with of the same nationality can maybe drop a couple of cultural references that I understand because I'm Canadian too or Australian too. So when we let them go is that they can do that. They can speak back to the community in which they're from. Um, the other dilemma with it is that... So if we think about Syria before the Turkish border gets closed off, I've walked across the Turkish border into Syria. and I've gone into Syria and I've run around and been a toy soldier for a while and pretended to be a, you know, something far more than I actually am. But what I've got now is I'm much more hardened, I'm much more committed and I'm way better trained than I was before I got there. And I either by tasking or by choice walk back across the Turkish border and I can get from Turkey to France without anyone necessarily asking me for any papers. And so I get to France and I hook up with the vast jihadist network that exists in Paris and I take an operation. Now, we might have cancelled, like, if we've let you go, you remain an Australian, yeah. and I'm fairly confident that the front page of Le Monde will be making a pretty big deal about the fact that you're Australian, and that maybe your government shouldn't have let you go gallivanting around the world being a jihadist. So I strongly agree. I think it's a really amoral position to say, let them go, because at least they won't hurt us, yeah. because they can then murder people elsewhere. They will go to Europe, murder people there, but also... They kill, and they have, in the case of Shroof and Muhammad Lomar, mm -hmm. you know, murdered Syrians. Yes. Cut their heads, cut heads off, um, raped sex slaves, yes. bragged about war crimes, yes. things like that. Yes. And I think it's a really amoral position to say, so long as they murder people overseas and not Australians, we're okay. It is so and outrageously parochial, it's not funny. It really is. And it I really have, is. It's like a, a overt declaration of irresponsibility. I have a similar critique of passport revocations too. You mean citizenship stripping? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we're yes, talking yes, about yes, supporting yes, passport yes, revocation. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. yeah, that if, if I'm stripping you of your Australian citizenship, citizenship, aside from the fact that when you do that thing in Paris, you will still be Australian. <laughs> as far as everyone else will be concerned, yes. The fact that we've gone through a bureaucratic process will yeah. not matter at all. Um, but most importantly is that it doesn't stop you gallivanting around the world being a jihadist. Yeah. It, 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 you know, the Canadians have a very different approach. You are Canadian and you will be our responsible, our responsibility until you die.
Yeah. And that we will either bring you back or we will take measures to ensure that you can't do what you're trying to do. Um, and to my mind, that's a much, much, much more responsible and uh, globally orientated way of coming at the problem. Yeah. And I'll add a few other points there. I'm also skeptical of how much it would even make Australia safer to sort of say go, but we'll stop you from leaving. For a couple of reasons. Mm. A, in some cases they may sneak back because we don't actually know who they are. Um, B, as you pointed out with Neil Prakash, mm-hmm. they can give orders yeah, to attack yeah, or inspire yeah, attacks. Yeah. C, they can also murder Australians overseas. Absolutely. The majority of te- Australian terrorism deaths occur overseas, Bali, things like that. If they're dead still targeting Australia, they can find Australians Absolutely. to murder overseas, yeah. without a doubt. And fourth, and this is one we really think about, if we do let them go, what they'll often do is drag their children along yes. and absolutely destroy their lives, yes. um, which we've seen Sharif do. So the supposed, um, you know, yeah. safety of Australia of, you know, just go, but, you know, don't come back, yeah. I think it's really overestimated. Yeah. The security of Australia doesn't stop at our geographic borders. Yeah. Um, and on the, on the other side of the, the critique, the left-wing critique of, of passport cancellations, I think holding that type of decision-making process to a standard of proof that is a law enforcement question demonstrates in the first instance a very, very fundamental misunderstanding of what counterterrorism is and how you go about the business of counterterrorism and the risk assessment decision-making that's involved in that. Yeah, and, and I think to it, it, it presumes a degree of kind of cavalier decision-making process or that there's an agency who's enthusiastic about cancelling people's passports. Right, that, that you know, I, I tend to fall on the side of presuming that the vast majority of the, the apparatus and the people that work in it are responsible human beings. Um, and that a decision to make cancel someone's passport is made on a reasonable assessment of the information that's available. And that it's, it's not uh, a court-based decision. It is not, it's not a punitive imposition on someone the way that a court, yeah, a court finding is. So that's a key thing in the rationale for it, that it's not a punishment, mm-hmm. this is the argument, therefore it doesn't require beyond reasonable doubt proof, it's a restriction on liberty for the purpose of public safety, yes. not for punishment, yes. I mean, um, I, I therefore has a lower standard. And you can you can see that could be taken to five and yeah. say, okay, we're going to put you under house arrest for everyone's safety, well that. that is detention, that should have a yes. thing. Yes. But I think you know, saying, keeping you from leaving Australia for a yes. period of time... Yes. I personally can accept the lower standard yeah. proof for that. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I get a little uncomfortable about the, the non-punitive thing because um, without drifting off into discussions about refugees, I think technically they're all under administrative detention and administrative, administrative measures can be exceedingly punitive. And the, the distinction between the two things has a lot more to do with paperwork than it does with what you're actually doing to someone. I think in the passport case, this holds, but it is sort of the edges of my comfortableness with justifications and fine grain articulations and splitting of, of things. Totally. Once it goes from a restriction on liberty yeah. to unambiguous de- deprivation of liberty, yeah, the, um, the non-punitive argument yeah. falls flat. We are or at least clearly... you've got to shift your processes. So we think about control orders, right? Yeah. Like by my understanding, at least, and correct me if I'm wrong, a control order goes to the AG and it gets signed off, yeah? But it's not a court determination. Only for the interim control order, yeah. I think. Yeah, okay. um, then it goes to a court. Yeah. So I think it can be on you for a few days yeah. while they sort things yeah, out. Okay. But then um, it goes to a court process yeah. on the standard of um, balance of probabilities. Yeah, okay. And in fact, Horan Kosovic, not sure if I'm pronouncing his yeah, name correctly, yeah, yeah. he was initially arrested in relation to Anzac plot, but yeah. those charges were dropped. Yeah. 
he went through quite long court proceedings on this. Um, in, in my view, it's a great example of a democratic due process of yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. They argued over each restriction of liberty, yep. and the judge said basically, we are convinced he's dangerous enough to justify a control order. Mm-hmm. We're not convinced he was in specifically involved in this actual plot. Yep. Um, we accept XYZ restriction. Mm-hmm. We did not accept ABC restriction. Mm-hmm. And that's a sort of a greater restriction on your liberty yeah. than a passport yeah, yeah, yeah. confiscation. So naturally, it has a greater standard of proof. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that there's been a few instances of like, where we've managed to demonstrate that, that, um, that the judicial processes and other processes that sit around most of our CT authorities actually work really quite well and that the transparency that's necessary and permissible in that environment actually makes sure that when decisions get made and they're not actually the right decisions that something gets done about that. Um, I'm going to take that back briefly mm-hmm. to the history of Australian yeah, terrorism. Yeah. Because I think we have all these new laws, but what a lot of people don't always realise is we have so many more accountability mechanisms now. Everything from the Inspector General to the Independent National Legislation Monitor to the Parliamentary Committee on Intelligence Security, uh, but even just within policing generally, various anti-corruption, royal commissions and things like that. I'm strongly of the view that injustices in counter-terrorism can happen now. They happened with Mohammed Hanif. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few other things which I think are also injustices that they plan to write about later on. Mm-hmm. But they're much rarer now yes. than in the 70s. Yeah. Um, and it was in the 70s where we had, in my view, the biggest, inju- and also 80s, I think, injustices in Australian counterterrorism. Yeah. The wrongful convictions of the Hilda bombing mm-hmm. and um, a wrongful conviction of the Croatian Six. Well, it's not officially regarded as wrongful conviction, but there's a lot of evidence okay. that it was a wrongful conviction. Because in those cases, you had uh, what was at the time an extremely corrupt New South Wales special branch and very, very heavy reliance on dodgy informers, mm. as opposed to now, where there's, it's a lot more about listening device and telephone intercepts. Yes. So in the Croatian Six case, most of the evidence against them came from one person involved who turned Crown witness. Mm-hmm. After they were sentenced, he was extradited to Yugoslavia, but then Yugoslavia just let him go. And then in, I think when Yugoslavia was falling apart in the early 90s, he was interviewed by, I think, Chris Masters from Four mm-hmm. Corners. And he was like, yeah, I made all that stuff up. I was working for Yugoslav Intelligence. <laughs> it shows that injustice and counterterrorism yeah, yeah, yeah. were quite, happened quite a few times in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. They can still happen now, but I think they're okay. less likely. And, and you know, the primary reason for that is that Australia has something approaching best practice globally in terms of oversight and accountability mechanisms for intelligence generally but for counterterrorism as well. Do you not think we fall short of America when it comes to oversight of intelligence? Uh, it's, there's two very different ways of doing it, right? So the first thing that I think Australia has going for it is explicit articulation of what you're allowed to do as an agency. Yeah. So as agency A, you're allowed to do this, this, this and this, right? Whereas in the United States, your tasking is to defend America against threats foreign and domestic or whatever the case may be. It's very broad. Yeah, which leaves a lot of room for you as an agency to determine what exactly it is that you might want to do. And what that means is that when excesses occur in the United States, investigations of those things tend to be driven by politics. Yeah, So it requires Congress to go like, oh, I think we'd better look into that and have a, you know, a, a post hoc oversight. If we go back and we have a look at what happened. Whereas here, you've got agencies who are tasked with A, B, C and D and if that agency then discovers that E looks like it might be becoming a problem, well, then we need to amend the legislation because we can't look at it unless it fits into the specific things that we're allowed to invest, that we're allowed to, to run intelligence on. Um, 
and that what that breeds, I think, culturally, is organisations who are rigidly adhere to both their legislative arrangements, but also to the range of policy prescriptions that they have internally about how to go about their business. Um, and I think the other thing is too that you wind up with looking at an agency like um, some of our intelligence agencies um, is that there is at least very much an eye on the fact that there may or may not be a court case come about as a result of this and that we know that prosecutions will fall apart if we've done things that can be demonstrated by a defence lawyer to be outside of the bounds of what we should be doing. Um, whereas I think the US system has a system of oversight that's much more orientated towards the political process and much more orientated to making sure that after these things take place, we go back and we have a look at them, um, if there's political demand. Right? But there's also congressional committees that have to be uh, informed about covert actions, I think within 48 hours. I think that depends on where you house said covert action. Ah, right. Yeah, so I, I think there's a lot more scope in the US system to do things that don't fall into the oversight and accountability system. Okay. Whereas well, here, I think that's a bit more difficult to, to pull off. I'll just continue um, with passports for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Just with regards to the left-wing critique of it. Mm -hmm. I think it's not fully realised often that there are, in fact, some accountability mechanisms for that too. Yeah. It falls short of judicial processes because the suspect doesn't get to see all the evidence against mm -hmm. them, and that's important. Um, but there are some processes there. Yeah. So if your passport gets confiscated, you can have the merit of that decision appealed through the Security Appeals Division of mm -hmm. the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, and you can have the process appealed through both the Federal Court and through the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security. Um, and in addition to that, we've had at various cases in various times the the so many freaking different names the <laughs> Independent National Security Legislation yeah. Monitor yeah. review. Um, the passport confiscation process, and also the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence Security has in effect looked into that yeah. when looking at legislation to um, adjust the passport confiscation process yeah. in around 2014 or so. And one particular thing was the Independent National Security Legislation Monitor. He basically strongly supported passport confiscation, and he yeah. looked into the argument about the International Covenant on Civil Political mm -hmm. Rights, because one of the rights we've signed up to there is freedom of... Um, travel, yep. and essentially that countries can't uh, stop people from leaving their country, because yep. uh, that used to be what, you know, Soviet Russia would do and things like that. Yes. But it says there are exemptions for that, and one of those exemptions is national security. And of course the exemption isn't can't large to ignore it, it has to be, you know, targeted, like yeah. individuals, there yeah. has to be a process. And he said, look, this basically falls quite clearly within that, this is not a violation of the yeah. national covenant, yeah. civil and political rights. And I think too, there's, there's to me at least, um, for, for both of those critiques, the, the right wing and the left wing one, is, okay, let me, for argument's sake, accept that one of those two positions holds. What should we do? Right? To me, if you're going to critique this type of stuff, it's partly at least incumbent upon you to then go, well, unless you're dismissing the entirety of the problem, which I think some of those arguments do. I think the implication is, if we let them go, we will be safer. Yeah, I think from the right, that, that, that's yeah. the argument. But from the left, I'm sort of saying, okay, all right, let me, let me accept for argument's sake that your civil liberties argument is more important. What am I supposed to do with this guy who I know, I might not be able to prove it, but I know that what he wants to do is to kill a bunch of Western people. If I don't cancel his passport, he's going to go to Syria and he's going to behead people. We know this. So in the absence of someone providing me with a better mechanism for stopping him from travelling, um, 
and I think a bit like control orders of the available things that we can do cancelling his passport is probably the least harm that we can cause and for as long as you're at the very least accepting the problem <laughs> exists yeah. then you've got to choose from a bunk amongst a bunch of crappy options and cancelling passports is, is I think by far the, the least least bad yeah. of those options so yeah so um, let's talk about how the threat itself in Australia has developed ever since that court arms by 90 that you mentioned. Mm. So since then, we've had four violent incidents, mm-hmm. um, which was the Newman Hayter stabbing you mentioned, the Sydney siege, the murder of a police employee, Curtis Chang by a 15-year-old boy, and then the um, stabbing mm. in uh, Minto in New South Wales recently. We've also had three proven plots, mm. uh, as in the pe- people be the... In these cases, they all pleaded guilty. Yep. Um, so there was the Anzac plot to um, behead a policeman on Anzac Day. There was the what's been called the Mother's Day plot, but I'm not sure if it actually was yeah. did involve Mother's Day or was just arrested around that time yet. Yeah. And then another plot involving two people in Sydney apparently getting instructions from overseas. Mm-hmm. With those last two cases, they pleaded guilty, but the court process hasn't finished yet, so we don't have strong information mm-hmm. on what they were or were not doing. Yep. And then there's been, by my count, about nine or so alleged plots. What do we know about these plots? What's like the nature of them? How do they differ from our earlier ones? And how are they similar to ones overseas? Yeah, so I think almost universally um, in all of those plots, proven, alleged or otherwise, and the, the four incidents that have occurred, what we see is rudimentary capability. Yeah, so plots to kill, stab someone with a knife or maybe behead them. And what we saw in Woolwich was that when two guys with not any real commitment or capability or skill try to behead someone, they end up stabbing them. Um, But just to put some context around that, the two guys who killed Lee Rigby in Woolwich in the United Kingdom, before they stabbed him to death in the stabbing frenzy, or one of them did, um, they ran him down with a vehicle. They then attempted to behead him and failed, and then they stabbed him to death. Um, but what we see is that all the attacks in Australia and all the plots largely um, are really low tech, really low capability, involving usually one, maybe two people as actual operatives, um, and increasingly looking an awful lot like the things that have been suggested to them by Inspire magazine, by Debeek magazine, by Adnani's pronouncement, and a litany of content across the ISIS and jihadist social media universe. So it's not just Inspire Magazine and just a beak. It's that there's guys retweeting constantly, sending out infographics, sending out all sorts of content that reinforces the idea of individual jihad itself, the types of tactics that you can use and the types of targets that you should be hitting. And what we've seen in Australia is this writ large. What we've seen almost exclusively since 2014 in the United States one small incident in the United Kingdom, which is as arguably as much a mental health attack incident as it is a terrorist attack, um, plus most of what we've seen in France and in Western Europe has all looked largely the same. Individual or, or two people involved in operations that involve rudimentary capability, rudimentary tactics, rudimentary weaponry. So despite the fact that in Orlando or in San Bernardino, San Bernardino the body count is higher, that's got more to do with access to weapons in the United States than it does with some sort of more sophisticated tactic. It's one guy with rudimentary engagement. They're not members in the formal sense of a a terrorist organisation. And much of what we've seen in France is is similar types of stuff. 
It's partly a function of the system that the jihadist movement has built to facilitate these types of attacks. It's also actually an incredibly positive reflection on the counterterrorism capabilities of the Western world. Newman Hayter and Curtis Ch and uh, Fahad Jabbar, and those guys in Australia, that's the high watermark of what the jihadist movement can get away with in Australia. The fact that that's what they look like now doesn't mean that there aren't people trying to plot large-scale mass casualty attacks in Australia, in the United States, and the United Kingdom. Except that when you try to do that now, you get disrupted, or you get caught and you get prosecuted. And what it means is that our counterterrorism apparatus actually works really, really well in stopping big terrorist attacks. The ones that we see are the ones that you can't stop. You, you can't prevent a guy waking up tomorrow morning, grabbing a black sheet, which at this point in time, after 15 years of narrative reinforcement, we saw it in the Sydney siege, the wrong flag, if it's black with white scribble on it, is sufficient to make the public go, oh my God, this is a terrorist attack. Right? But don't, it was. Yeah, of course it was. <laughs> but the, the communicative component, you don't need much. Yes. Go to an airport and you'll have a light fire and see what happens, right? Yeah. Arabic for God is great, a fundamentally benign phrase of no security significance whatsoever, but yell it really loudly at an airport and see what happens. Don't do that if you're listening. Yes. But, um, but because th this type of terrorism is reliant on a very, very well-established narrative, and the Islamic State didn't build that. Al-Qaeda did. Yeah, our Islamic State is piggybacking off of 13 years worth of Al-Qaeda brand development and, and narrative reinforcement that started with 2001, primarily. Yeah. Um, I like the point you made about San Bernardino and such, mm -hmm. the ability to carry out tax, attacks with high death counts there mm -hmm. is partly because of the great ability of firearms. Mm, um, that's definitely, I think, been one of the things helping keep Australia safe. Because yeah. sometimes, sometimes there's a perception that it's not that hard to get a gun in Australia legally, and I, I don't know, I've never tried. But what I've found from quite a few of these cases, just reading through the court material, there is a lot of con there are a lot of conversations about trying to get access to guns mm -hmm. and a lot of frustration at it. Yeah. And even with the Pendennis guys, they had about twelve firearms, yeah. but most of them were twenty two rifles and yeah. such. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a couple end up getting some handguns, but so much of their conversations about how difficult it is and how yeah. frustrating they find it. You're not walking down to Woolworths and buying a semi-automatic weapon. That's enormously significant. Exactly. It makes a big difference. And also, it's... It doesn't stop people doing things. And let's not pretend for a second that um, if um, Omar in um, in Orlando hadn't been able to get a semi-automatic weapon, that somehow or other the attack doesn't take place. But what it is is the difference between a maximum of, if he's really effective, 16, 17 victims and the hundreds that he was able to inflict because he had a semi-automatic weapon. Um, so, you know, yeah. it's, it's a fundamentally different environment here. Yeah. Um, and in addition to gun control, it's also often quite hard to get access to um, ingredients for making explosives. Yeah. This is less well recognised, but um, there was all sorts of fertiliser registries created and things yes. like that after 9-11. And I suspect that's made a bit of a difference too. Yeah, buying the root of what would have once upon a time been the traditional rudimentary two ingredients that you needed to make a very, very large explosive device that you put in a barrel in the back of your hired Vic renter car or renter van. Unless you're a farmer, yeah. you've got no good reason to be buying large quantities of that stuff. So yes. we've made it we, we, we've made it a very, very hostile environment for yes. people who are seeking to undertake terrorist activity.
And border security, as we've discussed, plays a role there too. Yes. Not border security in our weird Australian way of using this euphemism for mistreating refugees, <laughs> but no. genuine border security in the terms of monitoring the flow of goods and yes. people and interdicting suspects and things yeah. like that. Yeah. So both stopping certain people getting out yeah. and stopping some people coming in, yeah. I think that's played a role. And those things together are really reasons why, yeah. you know, something like Paris or Belgium is a lot less likely in Australia. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. impossible, but much Absolutely. less likely. It's not to suggest for a second that it's impossible, yeah. but it makes it harder, and it means that you've got to dedicate more resources to it. It means you've got to be more patient. Yeah. It means that you're going to have more time lag, which opens up a whole range of more opportunities for interdiction and disruption, prosecution and arrest, um, and even just basic discouragement. Right? Like, oh, we tried to, but we couldn't. Yeah. It means you need to be more committed and what we've seen since 2014 is people who are far, far less deeply committed and the levels of understanding. So if we contrast what would have, you would have had to have done to wind up as a member of Al-Qaeda sent on an actual overseas operation, after you'd been vetted extensively, you would go to Afghanistan, you'd go through a training camp for 12, 18 months, half your time would have been spent being taught guerrilla warfare, the other half theological content, you would have memorized even to me as fatwas against the Mongols from the 1200s, memorized the sections of the Quran, you would have been pure of intent in the true sense of being a jihadist. Um, if we fast forward to now, you've got guys who've read a couple of copies of Inspire magazine and probably can barely spell jihad. Yeah, the depth of understanding of the cause for which they're fighting, if, it, if it's not just a flag of convenience, like someone like Sharouf. Um, and that means that their level of commitment is much shallower. Yeah. Um, and so things that slow them down make it easier for people to go like, oh, you know what? I just can't be bothered. This is too hard. It helps. So. Yeah. And so that's what the threat in Australia is looking like at the moment. A lot of plots, but quite small, ad hoc, usually targeting police uh, with quite unsophisticated methods. And for the most part, fingers crossed, kind of being kept under control. Mm -hmm. But as mentioned before, that's not the only terrorist threat to Australia. Australians are often killed by terrorism overseas. And most recently, you know, for the past 15 years or so, Indonesia has been the most prominent place. So how are things looking in Southeast Asia? Because we do have some groups surviving in Indonesia, yeah. but also in Malaysia and particularly the Philippines. And ISIS has very much been reaching out to them, just yeah. as Al-Qaeda did, you know, 20 years earlier. Yeah, so, you know, I think one of the things that, that, that shapes Southeast Asia's terrorism environment more than anything else is Indonesia. Um, and probably the thing that's shaped it over the last 15 years more than anything else is what I would argue is probably the most successful counterterrorism campaign in history. The Indonesians post Bali have absolutely smashed it out of the park. They've got some natural advantages. They're a Muslim majority country that helps enormously in confronting jihadist terrorism. Um, but they have been exceedingly effective. The vast majority of people who are involved in jihadist terrorism in Indonesia are either in prison or dead. That is beginning to shift slightly, partly because the nature of the threat's changing and partly because some of the prison sentences are coming to an end. Um, and ISIS has, in some ways, in some relatively small footprint ways, um, sort of re-energised a, a new generation of, of, of people in Indonesia. Um, as much as it has in, in, in the southern Philippines, we have a, sections of Abu Sayyaf that have pledged allegiance to ISIS, so I think at this stage still an unaccepted 
Pledge of Allegiance? I think ISIS has responded by accepting the Pledges of Allegiance, yes. and I think there's been a video and such, but that's not the same as acknowledging it as a Williat of province. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, a couple of small bits and pieces in Indonesia pledging allegiance, um, but there's been some fairly substantial wins in Indonesia in recent times as well. Um, and Malaysia has a difficult and challenging environment in which to do these things. I think still Malaysia doesn't have an explicit terrorism, piece of terrorism legislation on its books. Um, oh, I'm not aware of that, but they certainly have the Internet Internal Security Act, which some, is what they use. There's some very, very strong capabilities. Yeah. But um, the other thing I think that's shifting in in Southeast Asia is... Um, is there's some of the more recent developments in Indonesia that aren't terrorism, but are the hardline version of Islam asserting itself in no uncertain terms. Um, you know, people, if they've watched the news in the last couple of weeks, the story groups calling for blasphemy prosecutions. He has the police have picked it up. Yeah, he is now going to be put on trial for this, blasphemy. This was the mayor of Jakarta. This, the mayor of Jakarta who replaced Jokowi when he became the president, so he wasn't elected the mayor of Jakarta. He is a Christian Chinese man, which is. You know, should be being sung from the hilltops as a wonderful reflection of the diversity and you know modernist version of Indonesia that I think most people understand. Um, but there is a substantial, absolutely substantial cohort of people um, who object to a. In fact, if we saw the footage of some interview stuff that was done on seven thirty, I think the other night. Um, interviewing one of the hardline clerics in Indonesia who was at least in part responsible for the tens of tens and tens of thousands of people who, who marched on Jakarta again, demanding his prosecution for blasphemy. Um, talking about how, well, it says in the Quran that infidels can't rule, can't rule Muslims. So, you know, he can't be the mayor and he can't be the president. Um, and the numbers that showed up for that protest were, were significant. Um, and whilst the, most of the organisations, so I think it's FPI, I can't remember what it translates to in FPI. English. FPI. Yeah, it's a, I think that's Front what it is. Pembul uh, yeah. Islam, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. Islamic Defenders Front, yes, basically. I think that's yeah. what it is. Um, you know, uh, are seeing an opportunity right, to, to, to push in a, in a non jihadist way. So that would be the immediate critique raised there. You're conflating different types of Islamism together like an ignorant Westerner. How can you possibly <laughs> suggest there's a terrorism connection there? Uh -huh, or what are you suggesting? I'm not suggesting, there's a, I'm not suggesting for a second that the FBI are jihadists, right? Yeah. Or that they foster terrorism. But I think what it does is it creates a space where hardline confrontational forms of Islam become more permissible. And then it's a half turn from that where other forms of violence become permissible. And you create a tension and you create a hostile environment and you create all of the things that you need for people to feel, even if you're a hardline Islamist organisation who absolutely disavows terrorism, the atmosphere that gets created around that makes somebody feel that that atmosphere is yeah. permissible and that your organisation would endorse their actions. Essentially, if you allow normalisation of violence in the political system, yeah. you can't really control where that or goes. Or even just confrontation in the political system. I don't think you need to be... And I'm not suggesting that the FBI or any of those types of organisations are responsible for the violence. The individuals who commit it are the ones responsible for it. But when you seek out that kind of confrontational and hostile politics, you create environments that are permissible for people to feel that the actions that they're going to take would be viewed favourably by your organisation. And that's not an Islam thing, that's, that's across the political spectrum. 
I think we've seen it recently in the election in the United States, where all of a sudden it's unleashed this wave. I mean, I've, I've got family over there and the reports coming back from college campuses and schools about SWAT stickers being spray-painted, how Trump being spray-painted, teachers who wear hijabs being handed notes to tell them to go back to where they came from, African-American people. Not because Trump has told people to do that, but because there's been a political environment created that's aggressive and hostile and confrontational. And it's in that environment that people will feel that their behaviour, which would normally have been not acceptable, is something that would be, if not endorsed, then certainly looked upon favourably by the political apparatus that they, they feel some degree of connectivity to. So I think, you know, there's also a big wave of returning foreign fighters about to come back to Southeast Asia. Yes. I'm not sure how much of that will overtly target Australia or Australian interests. Um, I think the stuff in the Philippines is much more locally orientated towards Mindanao and and we may see um, the new president of the Philippines adopt some of the tactics he's been using against drug crime the in the Philippines to the south, south, of Philipp south of the Philippines, which will have a significant impact on the terrorist problem in the south yeah. of the Philippines, regardless of what we might think of it from a human rights perspective, it will have a substantial impact. Um, and I think of the whole of Southeast Asia is the Indonesia and, and the southern Philippines are the two places where there's space for you to do stuff. Um, yeah, I think the Indonesian apparatus remains pretty good. So I, I'm Does much like here, where I think the numbers and the scale of the problem is going to increase. I have a fair degree of faith in the capability of the of the, the apparatus to counter it effectively. Um, uh, and just while we're on Southeast Asia, um, you have been, I think, giving some talks at the Jakarta Centre for Law Enforcement Cooperation. Yeah. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Right, so um, I've been over there a number of times um, speaking on a leadership program that they run, uh, JCLEC as it's known, Jakarta Centre for Law Enforcement Cooperation, which is obviously not in Jakarta but in Samarang. Oh, right. <laughs> um, um, was established by the AFP and the Indonesian police in the aftermath of Bali um, as a joint law enforcement training facility. Um, the course that I run, that I speak on, um, that has a number of other people, you know, City Jones usually speaks on it, a number of other uh, regional Indonesian experts. Um, had I had, the last time I was there, 21 people from 14 countries right across the region, a uh, guy there from the UAE, guy from Pakistan, guy from Lebanon, but guys from you know, Malaysia, Indonesia, Philippines, Singapore, etc. Um, and they learn a bunch of stuff about leadership and all sorts of other things, but I talk to them about terrorism and, and where things are at globally and then try and drill that down and give them some examples of what's going on in the region. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really, really effective, it's probably one of the, high, the really, really sort of high watermark outcomes of what has been the quite outstanding levels of law enforcement cooperation between particularly the Australian Federal Police and the Indonesian Police. Um, it's a really, really valuable exercise. So. Oh, well, yeah. so, anyway, we've run out of time, but right. thanks very much for joining me. It's a pleasure.